You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everybody and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning to our listeners. Did you have a nice family day weekend? Yes, I did. Thank you. You're doing many things back there. Are you able to engage or no? Do you want to do your own At thing At this back moment there? in time, I'm just going to silence my phone. Unfortunately, oh, okay. radio one-on-one failed. <laughs> Oh, you tell me to do that but, almost uh, every uh, show. Make sure you're on silent. That's true. That's and okay. And clearly, clearly, it's still the start of the week for me. That's, oh yeah, yeah. It's like a Monday for you. And you were uh, you were saying that you were busy doing posters and everything for the Radio Maria. Yeah, it's an exciting gather. time for us for sure. Excellent. So you were able to do anything uh, the long weekend other than that, or was it? All I did work? catch the. Uh, I did catch some of the uh, basketball action. <gasps> Our guy, eh? He yeah. did great. Kyle, for Kyle sure. Was yeah. Great. It was fun to watch. I have to say, I. I, I Left it for a little bit, went to play some cards, but uh, it was really great. It was great to see him uh, play so well and really recognized. He really deserves it. He, he did. He, he played excellently. He did. Uh, today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. And feel free to email us at radiomaria, thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions, concerns, anything that you'd like to, to talk with us about. It'd be great to hear from you. And do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also find all of our shows, our live shows and our tape shows turned over in a podcast format uh, on Radio Maria's website, which is radiomaria.ca and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. So Alex isn't facing the microphone, so I'm going to I'm going to scare him for a sec by asking him a question. Do you get outside much in the winter or are you uh, an indoorsy person? I'm very much an indie, indoorsy person. Indoorsy person. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't have uh, a ski written into my DNA, no, well. so um, that's a bit of an uh, unfortunate cir- uh, circumstance for myself because I do envy those who are able to in- enjoy the slopes a little bit because uh, the winters in- winters in Canada are very beautiful. They are. Uh, we were up north this weekend. Actually, it was one of the nicest weekends uh, of this winter. We've been very lucky this winter, quite honestly. The snow hasn't been too bad and the cold hasn't been too bad, but... Um, it's so easy to hibernate and stay inside in the winter time. You know, it's uh, it's can be a lot of work donning the layers. It's not as easy for sure getting outside as it is in the summer when you can just throw on a light jacket, your running shoes, and out you go. But um, that's so true. It is, mm-hmm. you know, and it, just sometimes just the thought, you know, you're all snuggled up and you know you're going outside and your body's going to be hit with this jolt of temperature change. But there are so many benefits from exercising in the cold. And um, no question, uh, the vast majority of us don't like this idea of, of you know, it's not, not that we don't like the idea. It's just, it's a little bit more work to it's get a outside. Lot of effort, yes. It is. It's so but enticing. It's worth it. Well, it is. But, it, you know, you, you, it's enticing to roll up, you know, you curl up in a blanket, you know, watch your favorite Netflix show and, and watch the, the day go by and just wait for the warmer weather. But when you, um, push through that desire and you do get out in the cold. There are some really good benefits that you can uh, extract from that. Generally speaking, um, I was doing a little bit of the Google for this. Mm -hmm. On average, you know, everyone's different, of course, but on average, the people that were surveyed gain from five to seven pounds by their, their hibernating activities in the winter. So that alone, just keeping up, you know, not shelving that exercise routine and keeping up, uh, you know, 
moving yeah. your body can just combat that. That, that uh, should uh, hopefully motivate others when they when they read yeah, that sort I mean, of information. You do I mean, want to stay healthy as much as you can. A hundred percent. And you know that little bit of extra weight just means as the summertime comes, you got to work that little bit extra harder to get it off. But uh, so that alone. You know, aesthetics, right? Aesthetics alone and uh, not adding that extra weight is definitely a benefit of keeping your exercise routine on. But there are, you know, being outside, having your body have to work to keep your core temperature at um, a, a decent level for you, that burns calories, so that burns calories, which helps with the weight loss. And it also helps really to get a great night's sleep. If you've ever been outside on a cold day and you've been outside for a few hours, there is nothing better than that sleep at night. I mean, I just, it's, it's just beyond the, the sweaty heat of being outside in the hot, that cold, that cold exercise just really, uh, for me, it gives me a much, much better sleep and, and having to keep your body up to temperature. And if you're shivering which that, that, you know, works more muscles and works more calories, it just really all helps for the managing the weight through the, uh, the winter season. But, uh, moving on something that you might not know is that, um, being outside in the cold and the whole mechanism of trying to keep your body warm and exercise can be a mood booster. So as the body works harder to stay warm, uh, the amount of endorphins, the happy things that we like to have in our body are also increased. So giving you a, you know, a happier, lighter mood. So that's another positive thing. That coupled with the fact that, yeah, a pat on the back, I got myself out here, that, that's a great thing. And of course, it also helps with vitamin D intake. And you know, vitamin D is so important for so many things. I mean, most of our layer, most of our body is covered up. So our skin is not absorbing a whole bunch of the vitamin D because we do need to make that contact, the sun and the skin. But you're getting a little bit and you're getting some sun exposure and that can boost your mood as well. But uh, vitamin D is also really important for uh, your immune system. So winter, winter exercising can actually boost your immunity. And this time of year when we're dealing with uh, cold and flus and viruses, that little extra bit you know, the, to help Goes you fight. Way, it sure. does. You know, yeah. we're, we're looking at this time, you know, we're looking at the viruses and, uh, you know, listening to the news and everything. We're looking for added ways to boost our immune system. So just getting outside, moving our body. And we're not talking, you know, Alex, not just skiing or snowshoeing or winter sports, but just getting out walking. You know, getting up and walking at a good pace on a crisp winter day is, is not only, you know, beneficial for you, it, it's invigorating. You know, yes. and it helps helps with uh, many, many things. So I do encourage you to get outside. It can be very, very helpful for you. And again, as I say, you know what? Um, Walking it, in particular is, is a good de-stressor for me personally. Exactly. So there's so many benefits. You really don't have to, for people who walk in the summertime, it's just, you know what? Have your coat there. Make things easier for yourself. Have your, you know, get up in the morning, have your layers ready and, and out you go. It's It's a... It's really lovely. I think we're very fortunate to have four seasons personally. Um, and as I said, this winter has not been too hard to handle at all. So, you know, going into the cold and then coming into the spring and the warm weather, I think we're very fortunate and uh, have a, a great opportunity here in Ontario and Canada to experience the four seasons. So do go out and enjoy. Do go out and enjoy. So we have a really interesting show today. I, you know, I've talked a lot about... Um, mental health with teenagers. It's, you know, I've got teenagers and young adults. I've got four young adults myself, and I definitely am in contact with a lot of young adults because of what I do and because of, of my kids. And uh, mental health is is a big issue for, for this particular age group. Not to say that it's not for every age group, but uh, I have a strong affinity um, for this age group. And in talking with my kids and in talking with, you know, friends and family, one of the things that I always felt, I came to the realization, the big difference between my generation and my kids, uh, one of the big differences is the vast amount of choice that um, this generation has. There are so many ways that school systems want to please and have available for interests of all kids, so many different programs, so many different avenues. And then, of course, with the, the, the advent of the Internet and social media, the, the amount of choice out there is, is mind-boggling for children, for kids, 
for us too, but I think we, we've waded through it. And, and our big decisions, a lot of them are made by the time we're 40 or 50 years old, you know, careers and so forth. And when, when kids and young adults, um, you know, place so much value on what their passions are and what they want to do in a career, to me, this amount of choice and, and not being able maybe to, to wade through all the positive and negative of choice can be quite daunting. And um, when Dr. Tapersky approached me, he, he very much is a specialist in all of these areas. And as we were chatting, we really decided to, to understand what cognitive biases are, and he's going to talk about them, and how they impact um, relationships and mental health, and how um, something called decision fatigue uh, plays into mental health. Very interesting um, person, very, very knowledgeable in this area, and I think it's a, it's a really on-point topic. Uh, Dr. Tapersky is known as the disaster avoidance expert, and he's on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the most effective strategies for decision-making and emotional and social intelligence. The first book to focus on how dangerous judgment errors are, these are called the cognitive biases, lead to business and career disasters. Never Go With Your Gut, his book, combines practical business case studies with cutting-edge cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics to show how to overcome these dangerous judgment errors through counterintuitive strategies. That's uh, Winnie the Pooh. So cognitive intuitive strategies followed by the most successful leaders and organizations. The blind spot between us reveals how dangerous cognitive biases devastate our professional and personal relationships. This book brings together real-life stories with the latest research in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics to help you forge stronger, healthier, and more meaningful relationships in your professional and personal life. He has authored several best-selling books and appears weekly in prominent media venues. His expertise stems from over 20 years of consulting, coaching, speaking, and training experiences as CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. It also comes, let me see the rest of the bio here, it also comes from foraging um, his expertise in study and research area. He is a professor at a university. I've just lost my other page here. Hold on one second, and I will find it for you. Ah, yes, sorry about that. He also comes for his research and background as a behavioral economist and cognitive neuroscientist with over 15 years in higher education, including seven as a professor at Ohio State University and dozens of peer-reviewed and academic publications. So, so much background in working with this topic for us. So please stay tuned, and we will be back in a few minutes to talk with Dr. Tapersky. Bring my need, I will bring my heart Before I lift my cares, I will lift my arms I want to know you, I want to find you In every season, in every moment Before I bring my need, I will bring my heart And see your voice And in the midst of pain let me feel your joy
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show today is live. Feel free to call in. Our number is 416-245-1534 if you have any questions on this great topic. And do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at The Health Hub, RMC. Good morning, Dr. Tapersky. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you again for having me on the show, Kathy. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, you and I were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this is a topic that uh, is quite near and dear to my heart. And your expertise in this area in dealing with, we're going to get to the, to the topic of cognitive biases and decision-making, puts you in a novel spot for so many things. How did you come into this line of research and work? Well, actually, it stems from my own childhood. When I was a kid, I saw that my parents were both making certain decisions that, uh, let's say, they weren't the best decisions. They were both gut-oriented people, which meant, of course, that when we feel something, we decided it's the right thing to do. We also think it's the right thing to do. We don't differentiate between our thoughts and our feelings. That's what my parents were like, and that's what most people are like, unfortunately. So... Unfortunately for them, often their gut reactions contradict each other. So my, let's say my mom liked to buy nice sweaters and nice clothing in general. And she would buy a $50 sweater and she'd come home. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate. So he'd <laughs> yell at her for saying that, you know, no sweater should be worth over $20, stuff like that. So there, I already as a kid, I saw that that sort of decision making, that was not helpful for their relationship, for their interactions, and they already had their impact of it, of course, my parents yelling at each other. But the worst was this one time when my dad, so he was, a, he was a real estate agent, so he had variable salary based on commissions. And during a six-month period, he made quite a lot of money, but he hid it from my mom, and he told her he made very little money. And he actually bought an apartment elsewhere and leased it out. In a couple of years, once my mom found out you know, she was so pissed. She was so angry. It was a very big blowout fight, very, very huge conflict. And uh, they actually separated for a while. So I ended up living with my mom naturally, and they saw my dad pretty rarely. They eventually reconciled, but, you know, she couldn't really trust him again after that. And it really shaped me as a kid, that especially, that, that fight, living without my, living with my mom, living without my dad, it just made me realize the kind of terrible choices that people make, financial choices and other sorts of choices that they make and that really harm them down the road. And I wanted to understand why do we make the bad choices that we do? And I found out that the typical advice that people get to go with their gut reactions is horrible, very bad, terrible. It does not serve us well, hurts us a lot, follow our, our, our intuition and so on. Really, is not a good idea. And I can talk about that in much more depth. But that's kind of what led me to researching this topic, to becoming a cognitive neuroscientist, uh, specializing in economics. So cognitive neuroscience looks at how our brain works and specifically how the various aspects of how our brain work causes us to behave in certain ways. And I specialize in decision making, especially in economic situations, so the behavioral economics. How do we as human beings behave in economic situations? And how do we improve our behavior and address some of the problems mm -hmm. that my parents suffered and that we all suffer from? And so that's my background. I spent over 20 years doing consulting, coaching, training, as you mentioned already. And I didn't only do consulting, coaching, and training. I went to do formal research in this topic. So I spent 15 years in academia researching how and why we make our decisions and the kind of mistakes we tend to make, which are called cognitive biases, and how do we defeat these cognitive biases to make the best decisions? Okay, maybe we can back end getting into cognitive biases. I'm going to volley this thought to you. I was, I was, I was thinking of a way to, uh, because so many people do um, go with their gut, isn't a decision based on gut feeling, can that not too be a decision made from taking in the facts and analyzing it? And isn't a decision from the gut it's not necessarily just re re reactive, is it? It can, it can be, too, a decision made from knowledge and history. Well, then that's not going from the gut. Going from the gut is following our instincts, our intuitions, the inborn impulses that are within us. So like my parents were following their inborn impulses and weren't really thinking about the kind of consequences for their relationship. And there are so many examples where that happens. I mean, 
there's a reason people there's a 40% divorce rate you know, <laughs> in you know both North America, right? This is a big problem, and it comes a lot of it comes from people not really thinking about what are the consequences for their relationships of the decisions they're making, the kind of things that you, you and I were talking about, the the how teenagers approach decision making, the kind of overwhelming amount of decisions that they face is partially because of the behaviors that they choose to pursue and the kind of decisions that they face and the kind of ways that parents provide them with information, unfortunately. There are lots of problems with that. So people, they follow their gut intuitions because that's what they feel is right. We're not taught decision-making. Nobody sits us down and says, hey, kiddo, here's how you make decisions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, do this, not that. We just go throughout our life blindly stumbling and making decisions in certain ways. And some things work for us, and we think they'll always keep working. And they actually don't. They, we often, we break things be, and we make really bad decisions because we use patterns that worked in the past for new situations where they don't work very well. So there's a lot of ways that we're screwed up and our decision-making is screwed up. And I've had a, a lot of um, frustration figuring out why and how people suffer because they make bad decisions. Because it's something I'm passionate about is reducing suffering and seeing the way that people suffer from making these bad decisions just, you know, it really puts me on edge and really makes me unhappy with the way that schools don't teach good decision-making and TV doesn't teach good decision-making. We don't know how to make good decisions. It's pretty terrible, actually. Well, I think with the onslaught of choice that, that you know, from one gen, I mean, we I never had this much choice in, in you know, and I know personally, if I sit, you know, I'm out to dinner and I'm sitting down and I'm I'm faced with uh, you know, five pages of options versus two, I get, you know, you get a little more anxious in the five trying to make a choice. But yeah. I think I think really the only the only way I can ever try and figure out of weighing choices for me was the pros versus the cons. Mm, and yeah. I'm, sure that, cons. I'm sure that that's just even if it's a piece of what you do. But how how would you sit down somebody and to sit with somebody and say, "This is how I want you to approach this choice." Are you taking out the emotion of a decision altogether and just being very analytical about your choices? So, regarding the pros versus cons, at least you're making you're using some kind of method. Most people, many people, don't use any method, and pros versus cons is very flawed in many ways, but it's better than nothing. So just to be clear, so great for you for using that. Now, uh, for you, how would I teach someone? It really depends on the decision. Now, there's, in the book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, which, by the way, is not only for leaders. That's kind of what the publisher wanted me to title. It's for everyone who is in the professional setting mm-hmm. who wants to make good decisions. That talks about two methods for decision-making. One, for casual, quick, everyday decisions that you don't want to screw up, where your goal is satisfying, like, you know, whether, let's say, you're writing an important email, or you're choosing where to go for lunch, or you're preparing for a relatively important client meeting, not a make or break thing, but preparing for a presentation. There's a method that's really quick, takes only a couple of minutes to do, very effective. Now, if you want to make a huge choice, one that's really impactful for your career, a career change, or in personal life, you want to make a decision about whether, I don't know, get married, what place to move to, uh, start a business, launch a new product, whatever, something really significant. There's a big eight-step decision method. takes about an hour to go through. And uh, so that's very for important, serious decisions. So I can talk through the casual ones. Let's say you're making a casual one where your goal is not to make the perfect decision. That's for the really important major steps, but just to satisfy and get a good enough decision. What you want to do is ask yourself five questions about any decision where you want to avoid a disaster. First question, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? So what evidence didn't I take into account? There is a series of cognitive biases, which we can talk about later, that cause us to unfortunately look for information that confirms our beliefs, that matches what we already want to be true, and that causes us to ignore information that doesn't match our beliefs. So we tend to cherry pick evidence inherently without meaning to do so, to match what we want to see. 
And it's very important. That question is about look for evidence that makes you uncomfortable, that goes against your perspective. Try to prove that you're wrong. Try to disconfirm your preferences. And if you can, that's great. Then, then it's more likely to be right. But if you can, that's also great because then you're not going to make a bad choice. Second, what dangerous judgment errors didn't I yet address? That's about cognitive biases. There are over 100 of them. And my book talks about the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases in professional settings and how to address them. So never go with your gut. You mentioned the other one, the blind spots between us. That's about personal and professional relationships. So that one talks about the most dangerous ones for the 30 most dangerous ones for personal and professional relationships. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So think about someone who is a trusted and objective advisor for you. Think about that little angel on your shoulder. Think about, let's say, what Kathy would do in this situation. You know, you get about 50% of the benefits for this question just by stepping outside of yourself, by asking yourself, what would you tell a friend to do in this situation? And you get the other 50% of the benefit by you know, calling your trusted and objective advisor, or of course, if you're a millennial, trusting, texting your objective <laughs> advisor. How, then, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So think about all the ways this decision can fail. Let's say you're writing an email, an important email. What if the person receiving it is in a bad mood and reads it from a hostile perspective, misinterprets it, and then gets mad at you? It happened to me, uh-huh. <laughs> so I know what I'm talking about. How can you address this potential failure mode? Well, what you can do is read the email after you wrote it to make sure that even if someone is in a bad mood, there's minimal chance that they can uh, interpret it ambiguously. So take out ambiguous words, revise it, edit it, and that's the way you prevent failure. You can do the same thing for any decision. Finally, what new information caused me to revisit this decision? What would cause you to change your mind about this decision? It's very hard for us to change our minds about our decisions because when we make them, we're emotionally attached to them. Now, this one helps you uh, being when you're in a calm and cool state to make a decision about what would cause you to change your mind. So, for example, if in a, for the email, let's say going with that, if in a week your client to whom you're writing an email doesn't respond to the email, then you will make sure to call your client. That can be a specific decision-making point. If you don't have that, then you'll be kind of, if it's an important email, you'll be biting your nails, waiting for the client to respond to you. But otherwise, you have this clear decision-making point, hey, this is what I'll do in a week, and so on. So that's a technique. Now, let me backtrack and make sure I address the question about emotions. It's very important to you understand that emotions are fundamentally important for our decision-making. Now, where they're important in our decision-making is the most critical step. Decision, our emotions determine our values, what we care about. It's that, that's what they're about, caring, right, emotions. So they determine our goals, our end goals, what we want to see accomplished. So that's the, where you should use your emotions. You should not use your emotions for tactics, for strategies, for how to get there. That's a very bad place for your emotions. Mm -hmm. For the tactical, for the planning, that's not an emotional stage. If you do use your emotions for planning and tactics, you're going to screw up uh, much more than if you use analysis and rational thinking. So you should use your emotions to determine your values, your goals. Uh, Emotions are incredibly important. People, in fact, extensive research shows that people who have been separated from the emotional part of the brain can't make decisions because they don't know what they're going for. They don't know what they care about. So decision-making emotions are incredibly important at the value-determining stage, what you care about, what your goals are. They should not be used at all in the tactical slash strategic stage. So tactic is on the ground, strategic is the broader strategy of how you get there. You should not use emotions for your decision-making. And I'm not going to go into the eighth step. I want to make sure to check if Kathy has any questions about what I said so far. <laughs> it's, it's decisions within the decisions within the decisions. And uh, it's, it, it seems that it's going to... De- so can you learn to do this quickly if you start practicing Absolutely. this? So, so the five questions... Yep, so the five questions, they, there is a similar model that was given to UK firefighters. Now, UK firefighting leaders, now they're literally making decisions in the heat of the moment. <laughs> and they, there was research showing that about 80% of firefighting mistakes come from human error, purely from human error. So firefighting mistakes from human error. And of course, uh, the people who did this research wanted to see what can be addressed, how can this be addressed. So they taught firefighting leaders 
how to ask themselves three questions, which are somewhat similar to the five questions I asked, to in the heat of the moment, in order to revise and in, invest the resources of firefighting resources effectively. Now, once they were trained, and of course, once you're getting trained on something, it takes some time because you're figuring out how to do it. You know, When you were learning how to brush your teeth or drive a car, it was hard to do. It wasn't intuitive. Now, hopefully, you know, brushing your teeth or driving your car is intuitive and you don't need to take any additional efforts to do so. So when they, once they were learning how to ask these questions, it took them a little bit of effort to ask them. But in a couple of months, once they learned how to ask these questions, they actually, their decision making was about as fast as the firefighting leaders who weren't taught how to ask these questions, but they made many less mistakes. So people who asked these, those three questions, firefighters, which were more specific to firefighting, they avoided a lot of the mistakes that caused a lot of deaths for firefighters uh, otherwise for, from human error. And this, these are the same technique. You use these five questions, it takes you a couple of minutes, you avoid a great deal of problems that would cause you many, 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 many hours and likely many thousands of dollars to fix if you don't ask these questions. So you're in a situation and you're looking at things analytically. I think it's very important. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and continue with our conversation with Dr. Tapersky. We'll be right back, everyone. on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about cognitive biases and decision fatigue with Dr. Tapersky. Dr. Tapersky, um, we've kind of circled around a couple of these terms, but we haven't really uh, haven't given you the space to nail them down. What exactly are cognitive biases? Cognitive biases are the typical decision-making errors that we all make as human beings just because of how we're wired. And this comes from our gut reactions, from our intuitions, and from our brain's wiring. Now, the important thing to note is that the cognitive biases result from the fact that we are not adapted for the modern environment. So we make a series of systematic errors that comes from the fact that we are actually adapted. Our minds, our gut reactions, our feelings, our intuitions are adapted for the savanna environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 to 150 people who were hunters and gatherers, foragers, so it was not the environment in which we find ourselves right now. Think to the, for example, think about how much, how important it was in that environment for us to, whenever we came across a source of sugar, to eat as much sugar as possible. That was incredibly important in that environment. And those who did that were able to survive and thrive and pass their genes on to us because they survived, right? Otherwise, people would die. Well, right now in the modern environment, it's very bad to eat as much sugar as possible. We have an overabundance of it, and food companies try to stuff it down our throats because it makes them profit. <laughs> That's horrible, but this is we still have this very strong desire. This is why there's a huge epidemic of obesity in Western countries, and this is a problem that comes from our genetic heritage, from our gut reactions, intuitions, and instincts, which tell us to eat as much sugar as possible. That's bad. So that's one example of the kind of errors that we tend to make. Now, another example more significant for decision-making than just specifically eating sugar is a series of decisions-making errors that come due to tribalism. So in the Savannah environment, it was very important for us to be tribal and to very strongly commit to our tribe because if we're going to be kicked out of our tribe, we would die. And if our tribe fell apart because we weren't supportive enough of it, we would die too. So we're all the descendants of people who are very strongly tribal, which means liking other people who are like them and disliking other people who aren't and a whole bunch of other things due to tribalism that, let's say, conforming to authority and conforming to social norms that cause us to, in our current environment, which is much more complex, global, multicultural, it's a very bad idea to just belong to our tribe and have positive feelings only toward people who are part of our tribe and be hostile toward those who aren't. It's very harmful in the modern environment, but we still intuitively tend to do it just because of how we're wired. So that's tribalism. Another set of bad errors comes from the fight or flight response where in the tribal environment, in that savanna environment, it was very important for us to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. That was very important for us. We are the descendants of those who were able to do it successfully to survive. You might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. Well, in the modern environment, you might notice much less saber-toothed tigers, but talking about the overabundance of information and decisions and anxiety out there, we treat each potential negative threat, stimulus, outside of us as a saber-toothed tiger. We have the same stress response. We have the same cortisol response. We really, our stress hormones shoot up through the roof whenever we sense stress, threats and kind of potential problems and every decision that we need to make is full of potential threats because we might make the wrong decision and that would be bad for us. We feel bad about it and we have an excessive stress response because of the overabundance of choice that we feel and that we have and that causes us to have that very much stress and cause us to make quick decisions that fight or flight, right? That's about quick decisions, which often turn out to be the wrong decisions, bad decisions because we make them too quickly. So there's a lot of problems and having an overabundance of decisions is just one category of errors, of problems due to our modern world. The, the notifications that we get on our phones all the time, same sort of thing. We have faced so many of them, and a lot of them, we respond to them as though they're saber-toothed tigers, and they're not, but our stress hormone still shoots through the roof. And it's continual stimulation. So cognitive biases don't have anything to do with learned experiences, really. Correct. Those are sep completely separate. Cognitive biases are inborn, inborn. aspects of what... Yep. So now... So the learned experiences build up on top of cognitive biases. 
so let's say racism, sexism, various forms of discrimination, that builds up on top of the tribalism, who we feel to be part of our tribe or not. You know, mm-hmm. right now in North America, whether Canada or the United States, most people don't care about uh, someone who is from you know, some kind of sick caste or whatnot, like in India, the caste system. It doesn't really matter to us. So, but in India, that matters a lot. Yeah. So that's how the tribalism manifests itself in India. And here in the United States and Canada, it manifests itself in various other ways. Okay. So now let's talk about decision fatigue. So this is might be mm-hmm. a, a fancy term for you have too many choices and you can't figure out what, where, to, where to stick the pin. So what is decision mm-hmm. fatigue? Decision fatigue is when we get actually physically tired, drained, exhausted because of the overabundance of choices that we have in the modern world and that we make in the modern world. So there's two. We feel overwhelmed by too many choices. That's one aspect of it. And then the more decisions we make, the more drained we feel. Now, this is very weird. You know, so if you go to, let's say, a store. There is this myth, this narrative in the consumer economy, in this capitalist consumer economy, that uh, people should shop and shopping is great and you get shopping therapy and, you know, you have wonderful experiences shopping. That's actually a myth. When we look at studies of shopping, of how people buy things, the more they buy things, the more drained and exhausted they get. (laughs) So that's the actual reality of shopping. Not criticizing capitalism per se, I'm criticizing this narrative of consumerism. The more we shop, the more drained we get, and we get fatigued, and we make bad decisions. That's why companies that want to sell us things where we might well make bad decisions, what they do is they make, cause us to make a number of decisions up front, smaller decisions. So let's say if you're buying a car company, uh, if you're buying a car, what you'll tend to find when there, you go through the form of, you know, hundreds ways of modifying and specifying the kind of car you want. You know, so you start with things that really don't matter much, car color, whatever, windows and so on. And you get to more and more and more important decisions because when you get to more and more important decisions, when you're tired, you're likely to make decisions in a way that the car salesman or woman can sway you to make, you know, more to, to buy more fancy things and more pricey things because you're more vulnerable, you're tired, you're low willpower, you're, they are more able to impact you. So that's a way that it manifests itself, just one out of many ways where car companies and others can manipulate you based on their knowledge about decision fatigue. Oh, I, I can relate to decision fatigue in so many aspects uh, in my life from Christmas shopping to when we were renovating mm-hmm. and it got down to picking knobs for doors. I was like, oh. I really could care at this point. And so, but, but when it comes to mental health and when it comes yeah. to, um, so like, like at, at my age, the big life decisions, a lot of the big life decisions are, are done in place and I'm seeing them through. But how can mm-hmm. this really impact um, a generation who has really just been slammed with choice and opportunity and decision? How can this cross over into mental health? And is there... A, um, a way that as with making, um, you know, the, 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 the five-step questions that you asked before, is there a quick, simple way that you can help them to slough off things that don't matter when it comes to all this choice that lays in front of them in important periods of their life? Yes, so there are ways that they can definitely make their choices more effective. That's informed by the research. A number of choices has to do with how you make each individual choice and whether you can change the choice. I'll tell you about an interesting study. There was a study done on students who were given the option of having a fancy art portrait made of them. And they had this fancy art portrait made of them. They had two art portraits, like really fancy portraits made of them, two versions. And then uh, there were two subgroups. Group A was told, hey, here are two portraits, choose one of these portraits and you keep it. This is your portrait, go, great. Group B was said, hey, here are two portraits, choose one, but for the next two weeks, 
you can make a choice and make a different choice and go back and you know change it for the other one if you think you might like the other one more. So in a typical, you know, our narrative would be that, hey, obviously group B would be happier because they have the option of choosing. Maybe they hang one on their dorm wall and see how it looks and then they hang the other and see how that looks and you know, maybe they'll be, well, they will have a more satisfying experience. Not so at all. The research very convincingly shows that group A is going to be much happier. So if you make a choice and stick to it, make a commitment, then you want to cut off your ability to change this choice. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big, big challenges with our society and with our, you know, thing, you know, get something from Amazon and you can ship it back, no problems. Uh, And so many other things, is that we can make a different choice. And so once we make the choice, it's still not finalized in our minds. We can still (laughs) remake the choice and give it back and, you know, so on. So you want to stop that pattern. And you will, because each choice that you can change weighs on you. It's an extra additional layer. It's an additional uh, loop that's not closed in your mind, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that you close that loop and you don't, and you commit to whatever choice you made and you don't change your mind. So that's kind of one uh, very important policy for you to establish for teenagers or anybody else, anybody who makes shopping choices or other sorts of choices. Try to commit to the choice. That's one. Second, see how you can create a policy for yourself. And I'm talking about policies, not organizational policies, but personal policies, approaches to life. See how you can make a policy for yourself that would cut off a whole bunch of choices. And that would be very important in this modern day and age. For example, you can establish, rather than thinking about, you know, here I'm going to get up in the morning and um, let me think about what I should do now, you know, obviously brush teeth and whatnot. What, what should I have for breakfast? You know, should I check my phone, watch some TV, whatever, uh, whatever you want to do and then go to class or go to work. Much more helpful is to establish a very clear routine where you do the same thing every morning and you want to ideally establish the same breakfast or if you you want some variety, choose, you know, among, let's say, five meals, I don't know, and prepare them in advance. And you will then have a very clear routine in the morning of these are the things I do. These are the choices that are pre-made. You don't have to make any choices because they're all pre-made for you and your past self has set this path, has set a policy for you to go forward. And this can be done in any area of life. This can be done in, you know, um, you talked earlier about going out and deciding what meal you want to have in a restaurant. You can decide in advance to limit your choices to a very specific category. You know, uh, so for example, if you're going to a Mexican place, instead of looking at the I don't know, the 100 options they have, five pages of 100 options, you can decide in advance. What I'm going to have is a taco. Taco is going to be my thing. And then you can just look at their five choices of tacos rather than looking at all the burritos and quesadillas and all the other things that you can have. So that's the kind of thing that you want to be looking for. You, uh, you want to make sure to try to limit your choices and set yourself a policy. You can have a policy of every time I go to a Mexican place, I will get a taco if you're fine with tacos and like tacos. (laughs) So you want to try to limit your choices and set policies that restrict your choices deliberately so, so that you're less overwhelmed with choices and decision fatigue. I think it's important to understand that choice can be a good thing. It's just how we wade through it. And, you know, when you go... Uh, children are, are, are asked, you know, the big, the big things and, and where there's a, it seems to be to be a, a, a real lapse in, in helping um, young adults in making these decisions to go to university and helping to cope and dealing with all the choices and the time and this and that um, is to stop asking more questions. Uh, you know, it, well, what do you want to do? Well, what do you like? How about, how about the fact that if you make a choice that doesn't uh, pan out, you have other options. And I think that that's important for uh, a young person that's trying to make these choices that, you know, choice, choice can be overwhelming, but mm-hmm. you make a choice, 
you go through the steps that you have mentioned, you make a rational, you make an intelligent choice. And if it doesn't work out, then the benefit is, is that you have other options. And I think, you know, the decision fatigue, we need to educate people on how to handle it. And I think it's Mm -hmm. a very important piece of work that you do. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to find your book, uh, where can they reach out to you? Because I think, I think we need somebody like you to, to really, you know, pull the arrow back and make a straight line for a lot of people. Um, where can they get a hold of you? Oh, thank you for, the, for your kind words. Well, my book is published by a great traditional business publisher called Career Press. So it's available in bookstores everywhere from Barnes & Noble and University bookstores to online Amazon, Barnes & Noble again, you know, the, whatever you get your books. Mm-hmm. You can find my resources on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's my blog, there's videos, podcasts, decision aids, manuals, guides of various sorts, classes, consulting, coaching, and speaking services. And make sure to go to disasteravoidanceexpert.com forward slash subscribe. There's going to be an eight video-based module course there on making the wisest decisions, decision-making 101. So again, disasteravoidanceexpert.com forward slash subscribe. And finally, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so connect with me there. If you have any questions on anything I ask, in the podcast, you could ask them there. Dr. Gleb Sapursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. And we will have all of your um, contact information when the podcast is up and ready. It's such an important topic, and uh, I, th- I think that to, to have a resource like you and, and what you're supplying to help yeah, everybody, of course, but especially younger adults to, to wade through um, the overwhelming choices that they have to make. I think it's, it's very, very important. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kathy. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.